the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. You're listening to The Dennis Prager Show, where I claim that we talk about everything in life, and this will be an example of it. I have to, before I introduce the authors of a new biography that uh, has just been published by Knopf, I have to tell you why. I came to non-classical music late in my life, or I don't know, late, late in my life, whatever age you are, it could be late in your life. Uh, oddly enough, usually people find classical music in adulthood. I found popular music in adulthood. And one of the aspects of it that has most just taken me over is this, the great American singer, Frank Sinatra. In fact, Sean, almost every day prior to the show for about 10, 12 minutes, plays Frank Sinatra for me. Thank you. I've got you under my skin. I have got you deep in the heart. Well, this is one of the songs that I will hear every day prior to the show. And I got to tell you, it puts me in a good mood. It does. It, It has a wonderful effect on me. And uh, I, I, I just can't tell you how uh, impressed I have been with listening to this guy sing. And I have uh, just come across this new biography of Frank Sinatra uh, with uh, filled with pictures as well as a great, fascinating detail about his life. The two authors are Anthony Summers, who was a former BBC journalist, and Robin Swan, who's also a journalist, and they have uh, written biographies of J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon. Anyway, this book is titled Sinatra, The Life. You can't get much briefer than that, uh, much more concise. So, Anthony and Robin, I, uh, I uh, welcome you to the program. Hello there. You're both now, uh, you're, I'm speaking to you, you're in Ireland? Yes, that's our home base. Okay. Um, I, we both, Robin, um, as you, well, you as you will gather in a moment, is, is America, Italian-American, born and bred. Um, I'm from Ireland, and uh, this has been my base for years, but America in a way, has been my patch as a journalist for many years. Well, well, welcome to America via radio to both of you. you. I have so much to ask you. First, I guess the first is, do you believe, because I was talking about this just the other day, I finally came across, didn't come across, I finally worked out my own definition of great art, music or any other art, and that is that it will endure over generations. There are two and that it endures in repeated hearings for any given listener. Will Frank Sinatra endure? I think we think so. Would you agree, Robin? Absolutely. I think, I think we think so, and a measure of it, perhaps, is, the, is in sheer longevity and, and endurance as a test 
we worked on this book, Sinatra, The Life, for the past four years. And when I say worked, I mean sort of eight days a week. And that meant that eight days a week and often far into the night, we both played Sinatra. We had to because we were writing his life. And, and we still like it. Now, there aren't many people that you could listen to every day for four years and, and still not be sick <laughs> that, of him. And we're not sick of him. That's right. I mean, even Mozart would be put to the test. Yes. So now, the, all right, so he passes the repeated listenings of the individual test. My other one was the next generation. Do you have any evidence that a 30-year-old today will, uh, will listen, will buy a Sinatra CD? Oh, certainly. Uh, there are many young singers, in fact, who are trying to, to mold themselves a la Sinatra. Look at the, the success that Robbie Williams had recently with a, a, a set of standards, an album of standards. Uh, look at the success even of a Rod Stewart, okay? He's not a 30-year-old artist, but he appeals to that, that age group as well. Uh, Michael Bublé. There are lots of young people coming along who are emulating the Sinatra style or at least trying to learn from it. Well, no, it's good to hear, but that, that, would, that would meet my criteria. Uh, if the next generation and the next generation listen to him, uh, it's... It, well, it, and he's, unless all the people who make, uh, I mean, the lowest level of music is perhaps Muzak, uh, the music you hear in the elevator. <laughs> but if, unless all the people who are involved with Muzak um, uh, are over, over 30 or, or even older, then it has to be said that there are still people, really, fairly young people, who decide that he deserves to be there. And, of course, as you know, there are still all over the United States uh, disc jockeys who special, and radio programs that specialize in playing um, almost uniquely Frank Sinatra. And, and um, they need listeners, and apparently they have masses of listeners. Well, I'm going to invite any of my listeners. I rarely discriminate on the basis of age. But I'd like to know any listeners under, let's say, 33 that have taken to Frank Sinatra. one prager 776 is the number. Hey, one- forget, about, um, forget about under 33. We have a son of 11 um, who, who calls him the man singer and knew who Frank Sinatra was long before we were doing this book. Is that so? No kidding. Yes. Well, no, that that's certainly a good sign. Anyway, the number is one eight Prager seven seven six. Incidentally, I I picked up on your sensitivity when you said elevator rather than lift. That you <laughs> you, you knew you were speaking to an American audience and already translated into American English. So I picked up on that. Now, what I I have my own theories, but I'm more interested in yours on this. What constitutes his greatness? In a nutshell, why is he why is he so great? What did he do he said, to a song that others didn't? Well, uh, go ahead. He said, about this, "Go ahead." You were good. Musicology. One could talk about it for hours, but you know, he said late in life um, that when he was asked what he wanted to be remembered for, and this goes rather to what you were saying just now, um, I want, I'd like to be remembered for having made popular music an art form, which may or may not be a meaningful remark. But he added, and to have reached people. And I think it's the reaching people that is the key thing, that he didn't just sing the songs, jingle, jingle. He, he, he ex- seemed to have, and in many cases had, experienced uh, the emotions that he sang about, and that comes through always. You know, that's, that's exactly what I believe. When I hear him sing, 
I believe that he believes it. Well, you know, the interesting thing, and what we, one of the things we try to do in the book is explore the, the journey that Sinatra took himself musically as he grew as an artist and the influence that many of the greats of the jazz tradition, say, or Billie Holiday, Mabel Mercer, those kind of people had on him. Sinatra credited uh, Billie Holiday as one of his greatest significant musical influences, and he said of her that she lived inside the song. And he learned mm. to do that. He mm-hmm. taught himself to live inside those lyrics and inhabit them in a way that that really gets to us all. He he shares mm-hmm. and, and, and emotes. That's in a way great line. He that that's we right. Inhabits the song. I'll tell you one other thing that may seem trite to some listeners, but to me is of tremendous significance. I effortlessly understand every word he is singing. I cannot say that about most singers. No, and this was part of his insistence on perfection. Um, early on, you mentioned classical music early on, mm-hmm. and uh, that you'd moved from from classic, moved on from classical mm-hmm. music. He never really moved away from classical music, and I think very few people know this, and that's why I'll introduce it. Uh, he early on he he said he'd like to have been a great opera singer, but he didn't have that sort of voice, that sort of range. But early on, he discovered went to Carnegie Hall and, and discovered classical music. He liked Debussy, Brahms, Ravel, Rachmaninoff, and Wagner. Um, and w- if people went to see him years on into his life when he was a mature uh, and famous man, it, it, he'd never play Sinatra at home or very rarely. He'd rarely play pop music. He'd play the classics. And one of the things he liked about the classics was the discipline of the classics. Oh. He, of course, came out of New Jersey and spoke, when not performing, a great deal of the time spoke New Jersey and, and spoke like that. But he, he taught himself, um, went to a, a former uh, Met uh, opera uh, singer as a teacher and taught himself in New York how to sing in a, an understandable way. His diction was crucial to him. And in the studio when he was recording... Um, he insisted, even long after the famous arrangers like Nelson Riddle and so on, May, Alan May, would would say, okay, it's a take. He would say, no, no, um, it must be done again because uh, of I, something that he thought he'd missed. I so love that. I love that. and perfection All that right. he was after. We'll be back in a moment. The book is a brand new biography, Sinatra, The Life. And the phone number is 18Prager776. The line's all lit up already, apparently. We have a lot. We'll be back in a moment. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful at lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question, and the owners of Relief Factor tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. That's right, designed to heal, and I agree with them. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, yes, 100% drug-free ingredients, each helping your body deal with inflammation. Each of the four ingredients deals with inflammation from a different metabolic pathway. That's right there, approaching from four different angles, 
may be why so many people find such wonderful relief. So if you have back pain, shoulder, neck, hip, knee, or foot pain from exercise or just getting older, you should order the three-week quick start discounted to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you. It has for about 70% of the half million people who've tried it, and they've ordered more. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF, the number 4-RELIEF, to find out about this offer. Feel the difference. The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me. All righty, everybody. Dennis Prager here. Anthony Summers and Robin Swan in Ireland, authors of this new Biography of Frank Sinatra, Sinatra the Life, published by Knopf. One thing you can always say about Knopf, aside from that they often publish wonderful books, is that they are the finest paper, most beautiful layout. I, that I, as one has been published a number of times, I really appreciate that. Uh, we're talking about Frank Sinatra, and I want to take a couple of calls. I really, obviously, want to devote the time to you, uh, the authors, but it is interesting to me how quickly... The lines lit up when I said, if you're under 33 and you love Sinatra, and uh, I have to believe that the the speed with which they lit up says something. Here's a 15-year-old in Diamond Bar, California, uh, 16-year-old. Sven, hello, Sven. Hi, Dennis. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, Yeah, um, I'm 16 years old, and uh, I was in Tower Records, I think, one time, and you know, the little listening station things that they have in there. I uh, I put on the headphones, and there was a Frank Sinatra CD playing, and I just listened, and it kind of drew me in because it really sounded cool. And uh, it was just something that I really enjoyed listening to, and I like kind of the, you know, the jazzier songs. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, it was all just really good music. Do you really have fre- Do you have friends your age who like Sinatra? Um, yeah, actually, I've got about three or four of my friends, and, uh, you know, I had them. I bought one of the CDs. Um, and, you know, they were listening to it. I think we were in the car driving somewhere, and uh, they all listened to it, and they thought it was really cool, too. So I think a couple all of them right. bought CDs and stuff. So. Well, that, that passes my test. I thank you. Let's go to... Can I come in just for a yes. second? Yes. Oh, of course. You're the author. <laughs> You're allowed. Um, the, it, playing the Summer Wind there, um, just before you came back to us, it reminded us that, that when he was an old guy and singing on an extraordinary musical marathon, he did a thousand more than a thousand concerts between 1976 and 1990 and um sometimes he he couldn't remember his, uh, the words of his favorite songs and the voice had really was shot and gone and yet he had something special and he sang the summer wind um in new jersey at a concert and people half a century his junior took to the aisles and, and danced to it in the aisles during the concert yeah, no, the, the, he's unique, I mean, from my, my, my musical sense. Uh, Dallas, uh, Dallas, Texas, TJ. Hello, TJ. Hey, Dennis. Yes. Hey, I'm a, I, I really appreciate you taking my call. I'm a Th- really big fan of the show. Thank you very uh, much. Whenever I put Frank Sinatra on, it really gets on my wife's nerves. Uh, <laughs> I'll start dancing around, and usually it's a song like... All right, how, how old are you? How old are you? I'm 24. Okay. 
So, and, so, uh, but I'll put I'll put uh, Frank Sinatra on, and I'll play like witchcraft, and I'll start dancing around like Fred Astaire, and she'll she she just rolls her eyes. She can't believe that I love that music so much. Uh, well, I've, I've, I've heard of Frank Sinatra being used to woo women, but I've never heard of him being used to intentionally offend them. Uh-huh. Well, he's married. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, well, at least we have TJ's testimony, if not his wife's. Uh, let's get a woman. Carrie in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah. Hi, Dennis. Hi. I am so excited to talk to you. I've Thank you. Thank you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm 31. I started listening to Sinatra, though, when I was probably around 11 or 12, and reason being at the time was I grew up in western North Dakota, and we only got about two radio stations at the time, and one of them was Hard Rock, which I just didn't like. The other was Prayer Public Station, so I just was so drawn to listening to him at that age. First it was Glenn Miller, and then it became him, but I remember growing up in high school, I got made so much fun of at the time. But I listened to old people's music, is what they'd say. And I kept thinking, no, I know I'm right on this one. I know he's cool. <laughs> How interesting. He's cool. All right, look, I can't take all the calls because that's all I would do the whole hour. Matt is 28, Tim 33, Robert 33, Rich 28 from around the country. In fact, uh, one of them, see, Tim says he recently got married and they played Sinatra at the reception. A lot of people commented how classy it was. Uh, let's go to his life. Is there a, a a disconnect between his life and and his public persona? Well, you know, one of our our, our charge from our publisher was to try to square the circle between Sinatra, the great romantic singer, the uh, uh, the, the great artist, and the other Sinatra that we've read so much about over the years, the one who was renowned almost as much for his allegedly loutish behavior or his ties to the mob, or his numerous involvements with women. Um, and we were try- we tried, and we think we have, um, given the reader the, the fullest possible um, information on those, those two, th- that dichotomy, that split. And, and there, was, there was sort of a split, but if he hadn't been such a complex character, perhaps he wouldn't have had the ability to sing those songs that way. So, so really, um, you don't necessarily um, get the best result from the artist who, who isn't a complex creature. Well, I think, let's not beat about the bush. We've been assailed by some of the critics since the book came out um, for giving a great deal of coverage to the darker aspects of the man's life. But the darker aspects really were there. They're real. The mob, the, everyone, while we were writing the book, if we'd go out to dinner with people, they'd say they wanted to know two things. They, they'd ask about the, the mafia. Tell us about the mafia, why the mafia they wanted to know. And tell us about Sinatra's own love life. He sang about love, but tell us about his love life. That is why the book is called The Life. The music you know, I find we've written about the music. Maybe a quarter of the book is devoted to that, as, as, and I'm very glad that we've talked about it today. But music is, above all, for listening to. It becomes dry on the page, hard to write about it. This is very much about the man. And you feel that had he led a less, what you call, complicated or complex life, it would have affected adversely his artistry, that the two are entwined. Well, who knows, really? I mean, these are the unknowable. That's true. Uh, That's true. It is unknowable. I think so often his experiences 
Of, well, let's life, talk about that. I mean, of love, right? And I'm thinking about Ava Gardner, of course. Here, um, you can't listen to "I'm a Fool to Want You," in which he had a hand in the writing himself, and which he first sang. Uh, maybe I'm wrong there. I'll have to check. Um, but he certainly sang in the throes of his unhappy obsession um, with with Ava Gardner. You just can't listen to "I'm a mm-hmm. Fool to Want You" um, mm-hmm. without feeling his pain, and that's. We we touched earlier on how he said he he reached people and love is not very often perhaps sadly more often than not love is not all about happiness and romance and dancing off into the sunset it's about pain and loss which he had a great deal of despite the fact or I guess related to the fact that he had so many women we'll talk about the many women the the book is filled with photographs every one of which I found so fascinating and I will say. If you want to simply see a series of, of truly beautiful women, beautiful to look at women, uh, he, uh, his taste was, was quite extraordinary. We will be back in a moment. The, uh, the book, Sinatra, The Life, I have the authors on with me, and we continue on The Dennis Prager Show. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. This is, to me, this is spoken as well as sung. This is uh, Frank Sinatra. I'm Dennis Prager. And I have the co-authors of this uh, major new biography of Frank Sinatra. It's called Sinatra the Life, Anthony Summers and Robin Swan. Uh, You have a quote in your book that I'll read to you uh, from George Frazier, the legendary Boston Globe critic. He said to Frank Sinatra directly, quote, All your life you wanted to be a big man, but the wrong kind of big man. You're a sad case, Frankie. I think you're the best male vocalist that ever lived, but I also think you're a miserable failure as a human being. Was that accurate or exaggerated? It was certainly tough from the hip. Um, you, You can't. As a biographer, I mean, we really work at this, and we work to try and get as far as one can, humanly, into the 
person, the personality and the, the suffering and the joys of the person that we're studying. And this was a guy who, whom we ended up liking in spite of, and that's a very big in spite of, in spite of his involvement with the mob. Uh, I think you must ask her, but I think my co-author, Robin, um, as a woman, liked him um, as a person in spite of his pretty savage treatment of many of the women that he knew. And the, the women that we interviewed, and we were lucky enough to talk to, now that he's gone, he's been gone almost exactly seven years, to talk to a number of the the, the women that he knew for significant, significant periods of his life. And almost to a woman, they spoke of him, in spite of the way he'd sometimes treated them, he spoke of, of they, they spoke of him with lasting affection. This is a guy who had something very, very positive, and yet could be a really unpleasant person. I think we found that a large, a large reason for this, which people weren't really aware of, was his drinking. He was, of course, a sort of walking advertisement for Jack Daniels, and that, that was treated throughout his life as a kind of a joke about him. In fact, it was much more serious than that. We established that he drank as much as a bottle of of Jack Daniels a day over a period of decades and that along with 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 smoking hugely uh, two packs of untipped camels a day and of course the miracle is that he could still perform and that voice he, he's wait wait this I, I find years uh, and stayed with us one minute I excuse me I find that yep. fascinating he spoke smoked two unfiltered packs a day uh, over and, long periods although depending who you talk to he stopped the heavy drinking or the heaviest of the drinking and cut back on the cigarettes in the weeks before an important concert or before an, a recording even mm-hmm. more so. But, but, he didn't, but he didn't stop the sex right before a concert. <laughs> not that we know of. We're not authorities on that one. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you, in fact, note that uh, he, it was important to him prior to, uh, to a recording session or a, or a concert to have uh, had, uh, had sex. No, that uh, was that no. is not that is not. So. Oh, all no, right. That's, I can I, tell you because yeah. we last did a, a biography of Richard Nixon. That whereas Nixon worried and and fussed and sat up in the middle of the night, as it were, biting his nails before the debates with JFK. What JFK did before the first debate uh-huh. was to arrange for to have a woman brought into him um, to to calm him down before he he went on air. Um, I don't have a recollection like that uh, unless you can put me right. Oh, no, no, no. I, I am so sorry. I had heard that, and I didn't recall if you had written it or not. So that is not – all right, so it's more legend than anything else. How many women did he marry? Well, he married four women. Um, can you tell us who they were in order? Sure. He married Nancy Barbato, the hometown girl, beautiful woman um, whom he brought to California with him um, when he became a star. Um, and unfortunately, beautiful though she was, she was the hometown girl. Um, and as the, fa- the wonderful pianist Joey Bushkin described it to me, she was neighborhood serious, and Frank had left the neighborhood. Um, he got to Hollywood. That's a great he, line. That's, I'm just, he, it was a great yeah, line. Yeah, go on. Um, and, you know, he quickly fell, fell foul of the Lana Turners, uh, the wonderful, beautiful women of Hollywood, of the most important of whom was Ava Gardner who became his second wife and, of course, his absolute obsession for life, his obsession, um, even after their divorce. And All right, we'll right. take numbers three and four in a moment. Sure. just want to remind everybody that we are speaking to the authors of Sinatra, The Life, 
just published by Knopf. And we'll continue with his wives and the whole issue with his wife. We have a 13-year-old from Nebraska who says she has been listening to Sinatra for a while. Wow. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Dennis Prager. That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. This is the You're one that gets me. High in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune. Folks, I want this played as I leave. When I'm back on top, back on top in June. Oh, I am go crazy. I said that's life. That's life. And as funny as it may oh, seem. Wow. Do you know, my dear authors, uh, I told you my background is classical music. I periodically conduct orchestras in Southern California, in fact. And I got to tell you, the chill factor in that song and some of his others for me is similar to the chill factor in, in a great Beethoven symphony. And so on a purely emotional gut level, it, it, it touches me as much as a piece by Beethoven, which I, I find incredible given my background where I had a you know, a belief that the best music is by far classical. And, and as I said, it, it was the same for him. Yeah, that, that fascinates me. And, and, and his, uh, uh, his belief that it taught him discipline and perfection, which is what comes through. It is what comes through when you hear him uh, sing. And, and I love hearing that because everybody should be inspired to know you can't get the great results easily. And he makes it sound effortless. That's critical as well, isn't it? Absolutely. But that phrasing was very much learned. Learned from Tommy Dorsey. Learned from watching Yaffa Heifetz on the violin. violin. Wow, wow. Um, Thinking to himself that what Heifetz could do with the bow, he could do with his voice. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, I I so identify with what a great musician can do for you. Uh, Let's go back to the wives. So we couldn't read music. Oh, and as uh, what's-his-name couldn't... uh, the great American uh, jazz writer. Oh God, uh, who who uh, who composed uh, "God Bless America"? What's uh, I feel? Gersh? Not not was it Gersh? Not Gershwin. Um, I'll get in a minute. Anyway, uh, he is not the only. I did not know that he could not read music. No. So he was only. Uh, did he memorize the lyrics, or was uh, he reading yes. them? Uh, but, uh, well, during his his early and middle years, yes. At the end, he couldn't remember the lyrics, but he worked on the lyrics. He said, actually, he, he varied, he contradicted himself. On occasion, he said, first, it's the story in the song that matters, the, the lyric that matters. That's what matters first. On other occasions, he'd say that it was the, 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 the melody, that the music that, that mattered. Obviously, both matter enormously, and they have to fit each other. But the lyric was enormously important to him. He By said, the way, every song should be a story. That, which he does. Incidentally, it was Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin could, yeah, not, yeah, he right. could not read music either. So now we have two greats, Irving Berlin and Frank Sinatra. Let's go back to the wives. So the, the, uh, the, the New Jersey neighborhood girlfriend whom he married, that's number one. Ava Gardner is number two. The, you the si- very young Mia Farrow. Hold on one minute. Let's stick to Ava Gardner. From How long was that marriage? 
Oh, well, the marriage was only a very short time. They married in 1951 after about a two-year affair. Uh, they were separated by early in 1954, and their divorce came through in 1957. Um, so they were actually only married for about two and a half to three years. Now, we were lucky enough to get some tapes of Ava Gardner talking about their relationship, um, which was very much fueled by alcohol on, her, on both of their parts, by serial infidelity, which probably began with her um, and affairs she had during their early marriage, which he then quickly, quickly escalated into tit-for-tat, and, and violent exchanges, not physical violence so much as emotional and, uh, you know, loud, loud arguing, alcohol-fueled rows. Um, but, you know, his obsession with her went on well past their, their, their divorce. Before the marriages to Mia Farrow, which Robin was about to mention, and then his last marriage to Barbara Marx, uh, she'd previously been married to the youngest of the, the Marx brothers, um, <laughs> he, he went back to Ava Gardner, as he had many other times, and saying, couldn't we get together again? She, to her credit, I think, uh, once they had parted in the, in the early 50s, um, said, look, you know, it will never work. We can see each other, but it's never going to work. There will always be an explosion again and the whole thing will collapse but he doggedly went on pursuing her seeing her helping her in later years when she was sick and when she finally died she predeceased him she died in 1990 he died in 1998 um, he um, agreed to appear because he promised to at a large concert in Albany New York uh, but he had a bottle of Jack Daniels um, with him on stage and somebody who was there told us that he, he was clearly um, grieving on stage openly, publicly, uh, for the loss of the one woman that had really preoccupied him for all the the long gut years of his life. Did he love uh, his final wife, Barbara Marks? I always think that, you know, the greatest arrogance uh, for a, a biographer is to say that he knows very good. Uh, who that's loved fair. who and what mm -hmm. went on in the bedroom. Well, we have to try to do it because that's the job. Right. But... Did he love her? Um, he stayed with her for more than 20. They were together for more than 20 years. She clearly was, um, however up and down that relationship, and it was at times up and down, uh, clearly she was the woman who, who worked for him, I, I mean, with whom it worked, in, in those last years leading on to his old age. There are those, and, and, and not least his two daughters, who loathe Barbara Sinatra and say, that she was, as it were, the wicked stepmother um, who forced their father to, or per persuaded their father unreasonably to go back to work. And there are others very close to the family who say that she was the best thing that there possibly could have been for him in those last years. Who are we to judge? We've, we've printed what the various parties mm -hmm. have said and leave it to the reader to, to, to think about. Uh, two things. One, uh, the, the statement that I had made of the about his wanting to have sex prior to every recording session. That comes from George Jacobs, his valet. <laughs> so I, I, I guess you don't describe much. I knew George Jacobs many years ago, <laughs> um, long before I worked on this book. And uh, he wrote, you know, a sensational um, uh, book about That's right. Mr. S, mm -hmm. as he called his former boss, just a year or so ago. And, of course, the book was, was ghosted. Uh, George Jacobs is a good man, a decent man, a man who still talks of the man he worked for for many years with great respect, and J 
generally speaking, I think the book is, is honest, truthful. It's, it's um, down to the basics with George Jacobs. Uh, but all right. He was a key we'll, man because we'll, he was take, we've got to take a break and I, for crucial years. All right, we'll be back in a moment. If I don't see her each day, I miss her. Gee, what a thrill each time I kiss her. Welcome back, everybody. Dennis Prager here. The authors, the co-authors of the new Sinatra biography, Sinatra the Life, Anthony Summers and Robin Swan. There is so much. I tell you, it's it's painful for me to have to say goodbye in a couple of minutes because I've just been riveted by all of this, by this man. I, I wanted to ask Robin a question. In in see, in seeing him, did you ever see him live? No, I'm afraid I didn't. Okay. In, 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 watching, in watching films of him, uh, in listening and in reading about him, did you understand the, the, I almost have to say, animal magnetism he held for women? You know, I did. It was uh, in part. It was talking to the incredibly intelligent women who who we talked to for the book, um, who I I really could relate to, um, who described him so well and the magnetism of those blue eyes and the way they held you, but also watching things like uh, the wonderful interview he did with Walker, Walter Conkright back when he was 50 years old, uh, and listening to him talk about singing and talk about his life. He really did have an incredible magnetic quality. But also, for instance, watching him perform, say, in high society, watching him do that amazing duet uh, with Bing Crosby, Did You Ever, um, which is one of the best duets I've ever seen, with two men singing in a most amazing, sort of robust, amusing song. But you, got, you were infected with this, their, their joie de vie, with their, their enormous personalities, and in particular with Frank's sort of sex appeal. Um, and and I, he did have it. I want to you know, the, yeah. a friend, another friend said of him, um, and this was a friend, a musician actually, but said of him that he could, he could turn, turn in seconds though. There would be this man with this great magnetism, this lovely man to be with, and suddenly he could be the meanest SOB, but it was almost always associated with, with drink, uh, which we touched on earlier, but I wanted to make the point that we submitted what we gathered for the manuscript um, on his drinking over his lifetime to um, a couple of people who are experts on alcoholism. And although they're very cautious about judging when the patient isn't there and is gone, they said that he he showed all the symptoms of being an alcoholic. So there's a really sad side to the man which goes far to explain the dark things that we had to explore when writing about his life. As you did so well, and I just wish we had more time. Paul, Mary, Joanna, the 13-year-old who listens to him in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, and Elizabeth and Tom and others, I'm so sorry I didn't get your calls. The book is Sinatra the Life, Anthony Summers and Robin Swan. What's your next biography? (laughs) It's you, Dennis. (laughs) Be be very afraid. (laughs) That's very good. It's not quite as sexy. All right. Thank you so much, and good luck with whatever you write. Thank you very much. It's been a real joy. Don't go away, everybody. This is Dennis Prager.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.